And uh, everybody else can uh, take a look at your scripture sheets, which uh, tells us we're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 17 today. This is my picture, by the way. It's pretty cool. Uh, it even has my crooked nose on there. Uh, <laughs> so very realistic. Thank you for that. Although my nose is not that crooked. But I guess it is a caricature. So we're going to be in 1 Samuel 17, week 2, on the life of David. Uh, one of the things I occasionally will look up when I'm looking for something fun to watch is a documentary series. I don't know if NFL Network did it or ESPN, but it's called A Football Life. And so you get the story of an NFL player, uh, and they're, they're usually quite well done documentaries about their football world and, and their past and all of that. And uh, this week I turned on one. Uh, uh, for Steve Largent. Now, some of you know who he is, many of you don't, but I was fascinated that the beginning of the uh, episode featured uh, an interview with not Steve Largent, but Jim Caviezel. Now, Jim Caviezel is the Christian actor that played Jesus in Mel Gibson's Passion movies, right? And that's who they began this uh, Steve Largent episode with, and I was interested in what he had to say. Now, Steve Largent was a five foot nine inch, 180 pound guy who went on to become an NFL Hall of Fame receiver. He went to Tulsa University, was a fourth round pick in the NFL draft, was cut by his first team, and then picked up by the Seattle Seahawks when they were a fledgling new franchise in the, in the late 70s and early 80s. And he went on over his 18 years, he, when he, when he finished his career, he led the National Football League in every major receiving category, most touchdowns, most receptions, most yards. He was a Christian man, by the way, went on to become a congressman from the state of Washington, I believe, or maybe Oklahoma, I think it was, um, which is where he grew up. All right. So Jim Caviezel said this about him. He said he was living in Seattle when they started the franchise, and they were all looking forward to their new football team and some great megastar that would come in and lead them to victory. And instead of having a great, powerful player, they get this 5'9", 180-pound guy who is not all that fast by NFL standards. Uh, and he said, we were hoping for Goliath, but we got David instead. <laughs> Thought that was an apt illustration. So we are looking today at one of those biblical stories that even the unchurched understand and know about. Everybody seems to know something about the idea of David and Goliath. So we pick up 1 Samuel chapter 17 verse 1 is where we begin the day. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle and they were gathered at Soko which belongs to Judah and they camped between Soko and Azekah in Ephes Damim. Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up in battle array to encounter the Philistines. The Philistines stood on the mountain on one side, while Israel stood on the mountain on the other side, with the valley between them. And then a champion came out from the armies of the Philistines, named Goliath from Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. This is probably about nine feet tall. Wow. Say that with me. Wow. 
The National Basketball Association has never seen anyone even close to this tall. And some of you may well say, come on, Pastor, nobody has ever been that big. And you may be the same person who said no fish is big enough to swallow Jonah. I heard one lady say, son, you ain't seen all of God's fish. And so I will say, you ain't seen all of God's giants. For the record, I believe the tallest uh, human being ever verified was a Pakistani this guy stood eight feet, seven inches tall, and he was not skinny either. So if God grows them that tall today, I have no problem with a nine-foot Philistine 3,000 years ago when they could put dinosaur milk in their Wheaties. This is presented to us not as a fairy tale, but as history, okay? This is history. Verses 4 to 7 describe his impressive armor, and then in verses 8 through 11 we read this. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel and said to them, Why do you come out to draw up in battle array? Am I not the Philistine and you servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will become your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall become our servants and serve us. Again, the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. So this is not a gentle giant. This is a taunting giant, a trash-talking, spear-wielding, nine-foot-tall monstrosity who dares the people of Israel to send out their best for some mano-a-mano battle. This, this kind of thing, as I understand it, was not uncommon in that day. You know, if you watch movies about uh, old wars, ancient wars, even through the Civil War, you know how messy it gets when 5,000 people on this side and 5,000 people on the other side run at each other with swords and spears. It's, it's a pretty ugly scene. The Philistines thought it would be a lot neater to just let some one-on-one -on -one action settle their disputes, especially since they had this one who was Goliath. But Israel had a problem here. After they saw and after they heard Goliath, no one felt very heroic. They had a saying in Israel then that went like this, the bigger they are, the harder they hit. Yeah. And nobody wanted a piece of this big fella. The whole gang of soldiers were afraid. And now, now let's go back to the ranch where we find David, the youngest son of Jesse. Three of his uh, brothers are on the front lines with the armies of, of Israel. Verse 15. But David went back and forth from Saul to tend his father's flock at Bethlehem. The Philistine came forward morning and evening for 40 days and took his stand. Uh, and now, back to the ranch, verse 17, David said to his son, Take now for your brothers an ephah of this roasted grain and these ten loaves. Run to the camp to your brothers. Bring also <coughs> these ten cuts of cheese to the commander of their thousand. And look into the welfare of your brothers and bring back news of them. For Saul and they and all the men of Israel are in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. So David arose early in the morning 
and left the flock with a keeper and took the supplies and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the circle of the camp while the army was going out in battle array, shouting the war cry. Israel and the Philistines drew up in battle array, army against army. Then David left his baggage in the care of the baggage keeper and ran to the battle line and entered in in order to greet his brothers. As he was talking with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine from Gath named Goliath, was coming up from the army of the Philistines, and he spoke these same words, and David heard them. When all the men of Israel saw the man, they fled from him and were greatly afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who is coming up? Surely he is coming up to defy Israel, and it will be that the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel." So Saul had sweetened the pot for the potential hero of Israel. And yet still the men of Israel reason this way. What does it profit a man to gain a wife and great riches and lose his head? Verse 26, Then David spoke to the men who were standing by him, saying, What will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine? that he should taunt the armies of the living God. <laughs> the people answered him in accord with this word, saying, Thus it will be done for the man who kills him. Now Eliab, his oldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger burned against David. And he said, Why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your insolence and the wickedness of your heart, for you have come down in order to see the battle. But David said, What have I done now? Was it not just a question? Then he turned away from him to another and said the same thing, and the people answered the same thing as before. When the words which David spoke were heard, they told them to Saul, and he sent for him. David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail on account of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. Then Saul said to David, You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, while he has been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant was tending his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and took a lamb from the flock, I went out after him and attacked him and rescued it from his mouth. And when he rose up against me, I seized him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, since he has taunted the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and may the Lord be with you. So here we have a most familiar story, known to some extent by virtually everybody in our society. As noted, you hear athletic events often refer to David and Goliath. Big underdogs are compared to David. Preachers love this story too, not only for its drama, but also for the great lessons that we can draw from it about courageous faith, courage, faith. These are closely related virtues, and so we'll join those two and look together at the courageous faith of this young man, David. His is a faith that has impressed men and women for three millennia. So we're going to study it, see what we can learn, and apply to our own lives. But notice this about courageous faith. First of all, it was born in secret and nurtured in solitude. Born in secret 
and nurtured in solitude. As you read the Psalms, most written by David, it becomes clear that David delighted to be alone with God and his position as a shepherd provided hour upon hour to be spent in the beauty of God's presence. David's strong and courageous faith came from periods alone with God. And these are indispensable as faith builders. There are things that God calls us to do and grow in together. Certain aspects of your soul can only be developed in the context of community. But other aspects can only grow in private fellowship with God. And it is in that private fellowship that we get to know God and come to understand that with all of His power, He is for us and He is behind us. He loves us. It was that assurance which David developed in secret that he took to the front lines before the masses and before the giant. Now, I believe David was so impressed by the greatness and the majesty of God that Goliath really, in his mind, did not seem so big. Honestly, when we are intimidated by other persons, it is an indicator, I'm afraid, that we're not all that impressed with God. If I happen to be the president's right-hand man, I won't be uptight around a simple governor of the state or a mayor of the city. Proverbs 28.1 says, The wicked flee when no one is pursuing, but the righteous are bold as a lion. Now, why are the righteous bold? What, what is the psychology there? Well, I think it must be because they know that God, God is with them. It was this confidence that David had. It was born in secret. It was nurtured in solitude. If you would have David's faith, brother and sister, try David's devotional habits. He said he meditated on the Word of God day and night. He met with God in the morning for worship and for prayer. He pondered his greatness in the night watches. Now, we, we want a shortcut on pretty much everything, but that is just not there. You want strength for your soul? I'm sorry, we, we don't have faith pills that you can just swallow, although if you stay up late enough at night, there's probably some TV stations marketing something like that. But God's power only comes with a good deal of chewing on the truth of His Word. What have you done lately for your faith? Well, you're here. That's great. What have you done in secret for your faith? Have you spent a morning in prayer? Have you gone for a long and lonely walk with your God? Now, you may get through this week just fine without that kind of thing, but will you be ready? <coughs> will you be ready for the Goliath encounter that is coming your way? Look at this quote by Philip Brooks. This is one of my all-time favorites. He says, Someday in the years to come you will be wrestling with the great temptation or trembling under the great sorrow of your life. But the real struggle is here, now. Now it is being decided whether in the day of your supreme sorrow or temptation you shall miserably fail or gloriously conquer. Character cannot be made except by a long, continuous or continued process, end quote. It was these oft-repeated times alone with God that prepared David for his public test. All right, second thing to notice about David's face was that it was exercised in lonely conflict. Verse 34, David said to Saul, your servant was tending his father's sheep. 
When a lion or a bear came and took a lamb from the flock, I went out after him and attacked him and rescued it from his mouth. And when he rose up against me, I seized him by his beard and struck him and killed him. The shepherd life, it was a lonely life. David's exploits with the lion and with the bear were great victories, but there was no applauding crowd to look on. No one but God. And that is often the way it is. Our greatest tests come when no man, no woman is looking. Only God sees and only God knows. Those are the times when pride and glory lust do not motivate. But those are the times that make us or they break us. What are you like when no one is looking? Are you motivated within to do what is right? and wise. Ultimately, you are nothing more than what you are and what you do in the dark alone before God. And what we are when alone, that comes out in public, especially in times of crisis. David was courageous in public, but he passed the test in private. I, I think also of the disciples here. The disciples of Jesus who scattered when Jesus was arrested. Remember that? Peter denied knowing him. They, they failed in public, and it was just the night before that they had been exhorted by Jesus to do what? To pray. <laughs> and what did they do instead? They fell asleep when they should be praying. Some folks sleep when they should be listening to the sermon. But the disciples were sleeping instead of praying, and then when the great challenge came the next day, they were not equipped to face the trial. David had courage to face Goliath because his faith was exercised in lonely conflict. Thirdly, now we see that David's faith stood the test of daily life. It's quite natural for us, some of us anyway, to want to be heroes. Many, many seem ready to do the heroic deed, exerting complete effort in order to come out as a victor, but few are inclined toward faithfulness in the daily affairs of life. It is the humdrum, ordinary things that we consider drudgery, and we have no use for that. But we all have to, had to face it. And, and how you deal with the affairs of daily life will indicate how well you will handle the less mundane. David was soon to be the great deliverer of Israel, indeed the king of Israel. He was destined to rule the great nation. But in verse 17, he is still a boy shepherd doing the humdrum work. But God says to us, if you are faithful in little, you will be faithful in much. And we see this future king obeying daddy and doing his mundane work heartily as unto the Lord. So there once was a wealthy farmer from Ohio. His name was Taylor, was his last name. And, and he was approached one day by a young man uh, named Jamie asking if he could give him a job. And the farmer agreed. And he allowed Jamie, in fact, to sleep in the barn. And over the ensuing weeks and months, Jamie proved to be a very hard worker and a valuable employee, so much so that he was given some responsibility over other workers despite his young age. One day, Jamie came to Farmer Taylor and announced that he and the farmer's daughter had fallen in love and he would like to marry 
Farmer Taylor's daughter. But the wealthy farmer was so incensed that this lowly farmhand would ask for his daughter in marriage that he fired Jamie on the spot and told him he never wanted to see him again. Years later, Farmer Taylor was cleaning out the barn and came to an area where Jamie used to sleep. There, when the straw was swept away, he noticed that Jamie had carved his full name into the wood there at the barn, and it read this, James A. Garfield. Taylor was astounded to find that his hardworking farmhand had gone on to be a great general and indeed the President of the United States. But he should have recognized in the boy's excellence at farm work the same basic character that would take him far in everything that he did. Well, this was the kind of young man we have in David, apparently. In verse 17 and following, we read of him carrying out the assignment of his father to take a care package and some gifts to his brothers there on the front line. We pick up at verse 20. David arose early in the morning and left the flock with a keeper and took the supplies and went as Jesse commanded him. Imagine this. It's a teenager getting up early in the morning. And it wasn't even a school day. That's a rare and precious quality. And then he took responsibility for his normal job by finding a replacement to watch over, over the sheep. And then he was about the special mission his dad had sent him on. He did as he was told to do by his dad, promptly and responsively. Now, he might have hoped to be sent out as a warrior. That seems to be his, his desire, but he wasn't. Just so, you cannot always choose your area of service to the Lord. You may want to be an elder in the church, but will you be a chair mover and a kids worship leader for now? You may want to be a teacher, but will you take the time first to be a learner and do it well? Remember a conversation I had with a, a brother about my age who was frustrated because he was called as a teacher in the church, had been a pastor, but due to some relational indiscretions, he had been suspended from his post and he was no longer in ministry as he was used to it. And I encouraged him to find something else to do in order to use his gifts to serve God. And I spoke specifically about getting involved in a prison ministry that I, uh, I knew was going on in his area. Well, he gave me the old, uh, are you crazy? Look. And, and that man, I'm sorry to say, is now a bitter ex-pastor. But you could see the seeds of that years earlier in this attitude about the mundane. Many times God says this, you do well with little and I will give you much. If you use your five talents wisely, I'll give you 50 talents. He says too, if you cannot handle money, how will you be entrusted with true riches? He says elders in the church must manage their own households well. Because if they can't manage their own families, how will they take care of the bigger family of the church? Deacons, it says, must first be tested, proven, and then made deacons. So, friend, if you aspire to spiritual greatness, and I hope you do, don't neglect the mundane and the ordinary. The faith to deal with Goliaths can also stand the test of daily life. Fourthly, now, we see that David had a courageous faith that was born in secret, nurtured in solitude, exercised <coughs> in lonely conflict, a faith that stood the test of daily life. Fourthly, now, we note that David had a faith, <laughs> my favorite point, which survived criticism and negativity. Verse 28, 
Now Eliab, his oldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger burned against David, and he said, Why have you come down, and with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your insolence and the wickedness of your heart, for you've come down just to watch the battle. Eliab, the big brother, just attacks David for even thinking about taking on Goliath. I mean, really. Eliab not only tells David he is foolish, he accuses him of irresponsibility and arrogance. With whom have you left those few sheep there in the wilderness? You probably just ran off and left them, you little squirt. And then he rails on David for being conceited, for being arrogant. David said in response, what have I done now? (laughs) Was it not just a question? And I've said this before. (laughs) Huh, you ever been where David was? Likely so. Eliab is quite a character. He is the patron saint of people who assume evil motives. We all have the tendency, I think, to assume the worst of others. We think whatever Joe and Susie are doing, they're probably doing it for self-advancement. And I tell you, one of the hard things about being a leader is having folks question your motivations. You try to accomplish anything significant, and somebody will come along and question your motivations. You may be doing something completely for other people and get attacked for it. Hasn't that happened to you? You don't need to raise your hand. If you're over 20, I'm sure it has. I volunteered years ago to serve as president of a community youth basketball league. Man, you talk about a thankless job with no pay, no perks, plenty of people just ready to get angry at you. I also volunteered as a referee, so part of the same deal. Uh, Two years into this gig, I was accused of taking this position in order to be able to stack my team with the best players. It was a ludicrous accusation, completely baseless, but very potentially at least discouraging. I mean, David was probably struggling with his flesh enough here. There had to be some reluctance in him to go out and face Goliath. Some part of him that said, you know, this doesn't look safe. His desires were not self-seeking, but he gets so accused. Now, that's a test of your faith, brothers and sisters. It's hard enough to do what's right, but then to be thought evil for it makes it doubly challenging. When that occurs, it will be a test of your truest and deepest motives. If you're doing it for God, you will not be stymied by the accusations of people. You will count the abuse as part of the price of leadership part of the price of stepping out for God. David had the courage and the faith to do what is right, even though it was hard and even though he was criticized. By the way, it is losers who criticize the courageous. You maybe heard of Robert Goddard, the father of modern rocket science. In 1921, the New York Times wrote an article saying, Professor Goddard does not know the relationship between action and reaction, and he seems to lack the basic knowledge ladled out in high school. But he did all right. Fred Smith, the founder of Federal Express, was told by a Yale professor that his idea of an overnight shipping company was just not feasible. We tend to put down those who have 
more courage and bold vision than we have, especially when they are younger than us as well. It's easy to call a man of faith a dumb punk. It's been done thousands of times. Eliab. <laughs> Eliab. Whoever heard of Eliab? Anybody here named after this guy? Any Eliabs here? Yeah, some Elianas, but I don't know of any Eliabs. Anybody here named David? Huh? Yeah, I met one this morning. Yeah, got a lot of those. Interesting. I, I imagine uh, that there were some other famous older brothers throughout history, don't you? Maybe we don't know about them, but I'm going to fill you in. Some older brothers who criticized the kid brother. There was Eddie Edison. He said, ha, Tommy, you and your bright ideas are going nowhere. That's what he said. Ricardo Columbus possibly said, I, I just bet Christopher is just, he's, he's gone on this trip just to hunt for girls. There's nobody in Spain that'll go out with him. <laughs> we could have a lot of fun imagining big brothers throughout history. Let's do a couple of more. George Disney, who said, Wally, how about you quit drawing little rodents and get a real job? Oh, well, the point is not to be discouraged by that kind of thing. What real difference does it make what other folks think? Don't let it stop you. Boldness, by the way, will often seem arrogant. It does. Boldness often seems arrogant, at least to the cowardly and the timid. And if you're afraid to appear arrogant, you may never be bold and courageous. I can assure you there were plenty of times when Moses and David and Elijah and even Jesus and the apostles, they did not come off to most people as being especially humble, not in appearance at least. Sometimes it is the case that pride wants to look humble. Humility only wants to please God. We'll say that again. Pride often wants to look humble. Humility only wants to please God. So David had, uh, had to overcome the critical attack of Eliab, his older brother. And then, too, he had to overcome the discouragement of the king. You wonder which was harder for him. Verse 32, David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail on account of him. Your servant will go and fight the Philistine. And Saul said to David, You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him. You're just a youth. He's been a warrior from his youth. Well, that's some great encouragement, isn't it? From the fearless leader of Israel, he says, forget it. You're just a cocky uh, punk. You'll get squashed. Isn't that sweet? Encouraging? Especially coming from an older man. But frankly, the voice of experience can often be the voice of cowardice. That's why it is especially hard for the young to do daring things. Their elders usually scoff. That's why Paul had to tell Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.12, let no one look down on your youthfulness, rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, purity. Show yourself an example of those who believe. So look at what Saul says here. He reasons really just like Satan. You can't do it. The obstacles are too great. Give up. Just remain mediocre. And most people would feel probably relieved at such counsel as that. They'd say, you know, I guess you're right, wise Saul. I mean, Goliath, uh, Goliath himself discouraged everybody else. And now David, in addition to nine feet of intimidation on the battlefield, was facing opposition from the tag team of Eliab and Saul. Most folks would have just wilted by now, and then they would have spent the rest of their life thinking, well, 
I could have been something special if it weren't for Eliab and Saul. Some of you may be thinking that way now. If only, if only, if only my parents hadn't been so hard on me. If only someone had cheered me along the way. If only, if only, always pointing to others as an excuse. And, and, and okay, it's a reality of life. Some folks had more assistance along the way than maybe you, you had. But you are not a slave to the Eliabs and the Sauls in your life. You can overcome that if you make God the center of your existence. I thought of, thought of Jesus facing the greatest foe ever faced, the greatest trial ever endured, and, and how he had to endure Peter also coming alongside saying, No, Lord, don't go to the cross. But strong faith survives criticism. It survives discouragement. David argues with his king. He says, Look, your servant has killed the lion and the bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine, I almost want to say unvaccinated Philistine, this uncircumcised Philistine <laughs> will be like one of them since he has taunted the armies of the living God. Why, well, I love that. He fought through criticism and negativity. He's ready now to face the final foe, the external one, which is Goliath. But hey, we don't have time to get to that today. You'll have to wait until next week to learn what happens when David squares off with Goliath. You don't want to miss that. But as we close the day, I hope you can see this. The real battles we all face, the critical and central battles, are within. They happen in the space between our ears and in our hearts. Christ was victorious at Calvary because He won the battle within at Gethsemane. David's readiness to face Goliath, it was settled in his own soul before he ever picked up a stone to sling. Your real battles are within yourself. Will you trust God or will you listen to the propaganda of the world and the flesh and the devil? Who or what are your scary Goliaths, your critical Eliabs, your discouraging Sauls? Like David like our Savior, listen to the voice of one who is mightier than all. You do that, and you too may be courageous in faith. And we should pray. Holy Father, we thank you for this story, for your strengthening of David, for the lessons that he learned in the privacy of his own heart, speaking to you, meditating in your truth out in the wilderness with the sheep, for how that came forth in the moment of his great crisis before Goliath. And Father, we pray that we might learn what we may from his example while celebrating as well his victory and that of his greatest son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Forgive us, Father, for those moments we've wimped out. Forgive us for listening to the voices of Eliabs and Saul's. Forgive us, O oh God, for not working on preparation of our soul for the great challenges and opportunities that will lay before us in the years ahead. We commit ourselves to that now. Lord, give us faithfulness in daily life. Give us a faith that is being nurtured in private and in solitude day in and day out, week in and week out, and a faith ultimately that triumphs through Jesus in whose name we pray. Amen.